0: Welcome to The Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm with Stephen and we're still running our Pain of Scale episodes recorded before COVID. And today we are listening to an episode with Melissa. What a character. I don't know her, but I loved her. <laughs> you know, we really listened to her. What energy.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite snippet in there was she was talking about winning loudly yes. um, and celebrating successes. And I thought that was such an important message for right now. If I remember correctly, she says,
0: to win quietly at a startup should never ever exist. And I like that so much.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think it's about setting expectations and then delivering and achieving them and then celebrating loudly. She doesn't do anything quietly, no, Melissa. <laughs> yeah, Melissa's amazing. And so I think it was a great interview. It felt like about a thousand years ago. In fact, it was just, it was just back in January. Yeah. But it's a great episode. And, yeah. you know, I think when we, we got into talking about the route to success starts with professionalism, you know, really understanding how to sell and then understanding how to set expectations appropriately. And then she touched on a really interesting thread at the end of the conversation where we started talking about the role of the chief customer officer, you know, understanding the customer's experience end to end. I thought those were great messages. Just as relevant today as as they were a thousand years ago in, in
0: January. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a decade ago, yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I noted one thing that she said
0: evoked the current situation of the startups obviously that are working through realigning their expectations and decisions. She said startups must find people that aren't precious. Yeah. I think that it's, it's a great episode. So so let's let's listen to it. And we are back, my usual sentence, at every start of every episode. Hi, how are you, Stephen? Yeah, I'm good, Paul. And yourself? Oh, very, very good, as always, when I'm talking with you and our esteemed guests and another one today, and we're going to talk about revenue growth.
1: I mean, you know, it goes without saying that this is a prerequisite for, for an yeah. adventure <laughs> tech business that at some point you have to achieve commercialization. Exactly. But, but more importantly, you've got to achieve predictability, repeatability and highly scalable revenue growth. And I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, who is Melissa Di Donato. She's probably one of the most well-known, most respected technology executives in Europe. She's also one of our executives in residence at Notion. So she's us and our portfolio individually and collectively in terms of helping them address some of the most critical challenges when it comes to, to revenue growth She's also got a pretty busy life of her own. Outside of Notion, she's the CEO of SUSE, the open source software pioneers, and was previously Chief Revenue Officer for SAP, their cloud business, and prior to that ran the ISB programs in Europe. So i um, delighted to have you here, Melissa, and, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And wow, with an introduction like that, it's, uh, I've got bigger uh, shoes to fill of my own, I suppose, to meet your expectations <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Looking forward to it.
1: I'm sure you have no problem filling your shoes. Um, I, I've enjoyed working. Your
2: expectations with you. in my shoes.
1: <laughs> I, I've enjoyed working with you so much. I've been looking forward to this. So let's just jump straight in. We invest at a pretty early stage in the companies that we back, typically at what we would call this kind of startup phase. So you know, sub five million in revenue. They they are at a point where they've achieved product market fit but they're fairly early in terms of their commercialization. That's not entirely true. Sometimes it's a little bit later, sometimes a little bit earlier. And then obviously we're working with them through what we would call the startup, then grow up phase where maybe 5 to 25 million, where they're, they're really starting to build some predictability and repeatability into their go-to-market models, and then scale up, you know, ultimately 25 million in REVs to 250 million in REVs, whatever it might be, where they are really looking to expand on, a, on an international basis and through multiple channels. And it's a very big question. I know it's really hard to answer. But I just wonder, when you think about that evolution from a go-to-market perspective, what are the kind of critical milestones that those founders really need to take on board?
2: So I, I think one thing that we need to all take on board early in the journey is to remember that nothing can replace professionalism, regardless if you're a million, two million in ARR revenue, or you're 50 million. The importance of professionalism during a sales cycle, particularly when you're headed for growth, is really important. Putting in professional communications to your customers, a professional setup for your employees so they understand how they can find success, how they can grow the business, what the KPIs are going to be, is really important regardless of the size of the company. And I often hear in you know early on in the journey, oh well, you know, we just jumped in and we did it, no problem. And, and yes, you want the can-do, all hands-on-deck kind of attitude. But at the same time, it's really important to understand that that lack of professionalism will lack professionalism. The only way to grow a company is to grow a company, really factual. And that must be started from the very first day and a professional sales cadence and the way you operate your enterprise is really important. The customers feel that early on. So I think the first bit of advice from my side would be create a professional sales organization built for growth. The second thing is that, early on and late stage, success is not linear to revenue or the more you sell, the more you grow, the more successful you'll be. Success is a measurement, is the sum of delivery and expectations. So setting expectations that are appropriate during the growth cycle is really important. So to say we're going to do 10 million next year, That's great, but make sure that you're gonna hit 10 million. And that goes for your investors, that would go for your fellow employees, that would go for your customer base. Setting expectations is really important. And then coupled with delivery, of expectations, that equals success.
1: It makes a lot of sense. You've got to be able to combine those those two things together. When you're looking at an organization, and and you're working now in kind of an open-source pioneer, previously you were working at SAP, previously you were running kind of ISV programs for Salesforce, some very different go-to-market strategies. And one of the things that I think is most fascinating for companies on this journey, so they're going through that kind of path that you've mapped out there, is to really explore the correct business model for them. So, you know, there are good examples out there at different extremes, like Viva Systems, you know, selling real enterprise-grade, significant-scale contracts or or Workday, which had enormous success. And then at the other end of the extreme, you've got the the Zooms and the the Slacks, which are far more of a kind of product-led growth, if you like, how do you recommend a founder go about identifying the best model for them out of all of the choices that they have about how they sell and serve their customers?
2: I mean, that's the secret sauce, right? That's the million-dollar question. I think you know if what you're asking is, do they go direct, or do they go channels, Are they to go to. You know, no touch inside sales. You know, in my last 15, 20 years, I've probably gone through every different type of sales methodology that you could, right? Whether it's going direct to the customer, building a field sales team, whether it's all run by inside sales, um, you know, depending on what it is you're selling and the value of the service or the product that you're selling. I've gone through a highly leveraged and channel market, I've gone through a reseller market. I mean, there's, you know, a, a dozen different ways that you can put together and utilize different routes to market, right? So how does a founder decide, well, I think I'm going to build a field sales team or I think I'm going to go inside or I think I'm going to go through, you know, through channels. And I think a couple of things come to mind. So number one, you have to look at what you're selling. Is it a high value? Now, every founder that's listening to this podcast is going to say, oh, of course, my product is high value. But I mean, is it high, high value, high cost? In other words, do you actually need a human being to interact physically with the buyer? And if the answer is yes, then you're not going to have a lot of options there, but to use one of two channels, and that's going to be through a channel, like through a reseller of some sort that could be highly leveraged and on-site, or number two, you need to go direct. And typically, in, of all the SaaS businesses I've been engaged with over the last 20 years, the only ones that can go inside, that can really run a sales cycle from an inside sales team are the ones that are doing high volume, low value transactions over and over again. And you look at Sage is like that. You look at a, lot, a number of the ERP vendors for the very niche SMB buyers. You know, We've trained those buyers to buy on the phone. But if you're dealing with a very complex solution that requires you know, people to be physically together, then obviously you need to go with a direct sales team or to utilize a reseller channel where they've already got the bandwidth and people and the engine built and you can just utilize them. One thing's for sure. I I don't recommend going out and hiring loads and loads of salespeople on day one as a new founder, building a new business until you've tested out a couple of the models to see what works. Now, a lot of founders also don't want to give full trust away by having resellers. They want to own the customer and that's cool and you can use different types of reseller models to even own the customer from that perspective so i think a couple of things take a long hard look at the kind of product and the value of which you're selling how is it priced Is it price per user and you're going to sell somewhere between, you know, $50,000 a year and less in way of ACV? If that's the case, it should be highly leveraged for an inside sales team. Once you start getting over $50,000 to about $150,000, you can begin to really think through high volume reseller channels because, again, those are not the ones that you need to control. And I don't mean control just the sales cycle, but I also mean controlling customer success. Then you've got the last complex sale which is really when you're dealing with a couple of hundred thousand dollars to start with ACV, but the implementation of your product requires some hands-on work. The minute that you offer risk to your customer and customer success, then you need to have a live salesperson and they need to be in control of not just the sales cycle, but the ongoing relationship with the customer for life. And that is going to repay back dividends by investing on people selling you know, from person to person, hands-on with the field sales team, because they take on much more of the role of not just selling, but of managing the relationship as well, particularly in the early days.
1: I suppose it's a lot to do with really with understanding the customer choice. Which customers are we choosing to serve? And, and the more you understand that, the more you can understand the, the most appropriate business model. But I think the interesting challenge is that kind of experimentation that says, how do I actually test and validate the different routes to market that, that could actually work? Have you seen some good examples of, of early stage companies where you think they've been particularly innovative in terms of their go-to-market and kind of revenue models?
2: Yeah, I've seen a number of really stellar ones. I've seen some that didn't work at all. The one I found more recently, and and, um, it's not just because I helped them build it, but because it's really working well for their enterprise. It's a high value SaaS-based product. They're actually in the Notion portfolio. It's a very complex sale to a very particular buyer. Now, the buyer inside of these large enterprises are not your traditional procurement buyers. So not necessarily in the sense that, they understand how to buy and sell software. They're much more attuned to the role in which they play because they're business users or business buyers. Now, when selling to a business buyer versus IT, as an example, you get into a whole different KPI measurements for success. How do you sell to a business buyer and communicate with them about the product and the value you have to offer? And what they did, they said, look, we're a small startup. We're early in our our journey. We've got a couple of million in ARR. And, you know, we really want to leverage the field, touching the customer as much as possible. So what they did was they set up a pod model. So for every one field salesperson, you had two inside salespeople and the inside sales guys and gals walked the hall. They gathered all the information. They worked on the contracts. Once it started going, they had very particular tasks and this divide and conquer workload enabled your field sales guy to focus on a ton more than they'd ever be able to focus on in and of themselves because they're not doing, let's call the busy work. When you have the assistance and help of the inside team doing a lot of the legwork for you, doing a bit of a negotiation with procurement, and once the deal gets going and it piques the interest of the customer, even early on in the cycle, Well, then that makes for success. And then what they did was as the team grew bigger, they then went from one field sales to two in the pod, inside sales, to one field sales and three in the pod. And then once they added the third in the pod, they then took a marketing leader and began to take 25% of a marketing person to generate the opportunities and leads. So really created a very fast moving, high growth engine built around the way the customer needed to be communicated to and the way that they were used to finding value for their business. And it worked very, very well. So we leveraged all different bits of the sales engine enterprise to deliver value in a high growth market to the customer. Worked really well. The pod model, particularly for startups, In complex sales cycles works very well.
1: It's highly repeatable, of course, once you've got that model. You know, in a number of different ways, you could take one or two people from a successful pod, start a new pod, or replicate it entirely. And we've seen also good examples of people using that kind of structure to test and validate new markets as well. So that's that's right. It's a really nice approach. I was wondering, maybe just take a little bit of a step back. There's a really interesting stage that happens before that pod is established and before those people reach full productivity. And that's kind of the transition from the founder-led sale to the team sale. And I know the company you're, you're talking of, but we, you see this so many times where you have a, a highly competent CEO slash founder who understands the customer problem And the solution that's being developed inside out. And they have to go through the process of moving from being involved in every single sale to it becoming, as you describe it, a a profession. How do you recommend a founder who is in that position where they're integral to every sale go through that process of, of almost taking himself out of the process?
2: It's really hard. It's really emotional. It's really difficult because naturally a founder this is their child this is their baby right they're raising they've given birth to this child this idea this concept and they want to make sure that everything's done as they would want to do it themselves and the only way to do that really is, is to bridge the gap of confidence the sales leader must be appointed and must be openly communicative with the founder to say I'm going to take this job on. And when I need you, I'll let you know. And you have to give me the space and the authority to make decisions and to do the right things for our customers. And that means oftentimes pulling the founder out of being the head of sales and the head of engineering and the head of marketing and the head of, and, 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 and and the list goes on. And it's a very emotional journey that one needs to go on with their founders. And oftentimes it works really well to get an advisor. When I speak to my portfolio companies here at Notion and give the founders advice, It sounds very, very different than someone inside of their company. And the reason why that is, is because I'm the quote unquote authority and I'm giving them some advice of which they care about. They want, they're asking for it, but yet right inside their own company, they may not take the advice. So it's a matter of time and trust and success that the founder needs to embrace. Sometimes getting external counsel from you know, their notion company or whoever their PE is or their VC is that invested in them will often give them very similar advice. And and sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it, as my mother used to say. And sometimes the way you deliver the message of, look, you can't be everywhere all the time. And with the founder doing all of these things that the founder wants to do, it becomes a single point of failure. And if God forbid that, that something happens to that founder, if God forbid they get stuck in traffic and can't make the meeting, then everything will go to hell in a handbasket. It's a matter of really giving out authority to those around you. And that sometimes, of course, again, as we said, Starts with building up trust, but it's really important to show success to the founders so they can feel comfortable in letting things go, walking away and moving on to other things. Look, it's a hard journey, right? I mean, it's hard for them as it would be for any of us at the same token.
1: Yeah, and two of the key hires that I see people really struggling with are are that first VP of sales and also the first VP of marketing. Any thoughts on that with a with an early stage business in terms of what should we be looking for what kind of characteristics what type of people? Yes
2: my advice particularly on sales find someone that you know. Find someone in your network that you can call on because and, and marketing less so on in this one point the firms that have started out early in the journey and hired people in their network and it doesn't have to be someone that worked for me before if I'm the founder or that worked for someone directly but someone in your network it's critically important i think in the in the journey that you find a head of sales a vp of sales a you know cro that someone knows because of the dna that was required to mix well in the early part of a company's development. It's not about the skills alone. It's not about, well, I got this crazy good sales guy that kills the numbers no matter where he goes. And Look look at a track record. It's not the track record. It's more than that, particularly your first hire. So find someone in your network, ask for help, ask for recommendations of people that, you know, that would be my number one top trick. I have not hired a head of sales outside of somewhere in my network in 10 years, and knock wood, I haven't gone wrong yet because you could depend on people's personal recommendations. So that's number one. Number two, in the early stage of a company, you really need a head of sales. that's willing to do everything and be everybody. They're going to have to be the pre-sales guy. They're going to have to be the engineering expert. They're going to have to be the customer success and customer for life expert after building the relationship. They've got to be business development. They've got to be marketing. They've got to wear a lot of hats. You have to find someone who's not precious. And I use this very loosely. The minute you start attaching a CRO title or a VP of sales title, all of a sudden everyone becomes very precious and they don't want to do all the hard grunt work. You need to find someone that's going to put on loads of hats and do anything. And that includes painting the walls in the loop. Because that's what we all have to do when a company is starting out in the early stages is for someone to really want to get their hands dirty. The third tip, I think, in early stage, and how do you hire the best CMO or the CRO, you know, whatever it is, is really to make sure that you like them, and you know, don't underestimate this. In my last company, I had a killer sales leader, great numbers, but he had no personality. No one liked him, and I said to myself, "Well, I mean, you know, first of all, life's short, and you've got to spend loads of time with these people, and you know, you really got to invest in them and their future, and them personally, because when a company's starting out, you really need to put everything into it." And no one no one liked him. And I said, well, if, I, if we don't like him, what do the customers say? Maybe they're buying just to get rid of the guy. I don't know. Like you know." So I would say it's really important, don't underestimate, that you find someone that you can really spend time with and work with that you like. If they're really good at their job, but I don't really like them. That's not good enough in an early stage company. Really important that you find someone in your network, someone that you know will get their hands dirty and that will really do any role you ask them to do, including make tea. And the third thing is find people around you, particularly for those important roles early on that you really want to be with because you are going to be with them for the next five to 10 years. So you better make it good.
1: There's no room, is there, for the brilliant jerk?
2: There's no room. And there was, there in Melton days there were. in the days where we were so, it was so hard to find the right person. The minute you looked at their CV and it looked right, oh, that guy's a jerk. We'll hire him anyway. It's not that anymore. There's no room for jerks, no room. Not in the startup, no way.
1: I just want to take right back to the beginning. You talked, I think, a really nice kind of succinct way of talking about how do you build the the go-to-market model, which was building the, the profession and thinking of it as a profession. And then secondly, kind of delivering on success. And I just want to kind of dig back into those a, a little bit more. So let's take the first one, and that's that sales profession. And you talked about the kind of pod structure. How do you kind of recommend an organization – to create that kind of professionalism across sales, marketing, and customer success, the whole customer life cycle journey.
2: I believe in sales, you know, to be a professional sales leader, it's like being a doctor. You go to the school for 15 years and you become a really good leader and some things you'll just innately know, some people are just born with being a really good sales leader and other people, uh, it takes some time And you and you learn more than you acquire. And I think that, you know, in the truest sense, it is really important to make sure that you are hiring professional sales leaders. There is a professionalism that's really important. And mostly because a lot of these buyers are used to buying professionally. There's very few buyers in the world anymore. And, you know, we don't build businesses really based on relationships that much anymore because of the nuances and legality around the way people need to work and deliver. And, you know, the reports and the mechanisms are all being controlled. So there isn't a really important step, which is you know, make sure that you professionalize from day one. Now, in doing that, you know, the delivery and the results you should expect are also go- going equally be professional. Now, when we look at the customer success lifecycle, what I've done here at SUSE is take a different tact. I do have a head of sales, but the head of sales reports to someone called the chief customer officer. And more and more and more people hire chief customer officers before they hire a head of sales, and the chief customer officer is responsible for all of the communications and work with your customers. That starts with lead gen, not from a marketing perspective, but from a biz dev perspective, all the way through sales and then ongoing customer success and renewals. And that chief customer officer is in charge of the professionalism of which your company communicates to your customer. And I would say these days, the chief customer officer is almost more important than hiring ahead of sales for your first hire. They're responsible for sales. You're going to get two, you know, for the price of one, if you will. And they're also going to have the KPI of ensuring that every interaction with your customer is not just professional, but it is thoughtful and meaningful in every regard. And that means how we communicate, how we pitch, how we sell, how we close the deal, and then how we manage that relationship forever, for life, literally. So I think that, you know, my advice would be to all the founders out there that are listening to this podcast, think about what's most important to you. And I bet every single one of you are going to say two things. Number one, to have a customer for life. And number two, to make sure you do really good sales deals. And number three, to make sure you never lose that customer and that your attrition is extremely low and that your renewals are extremely high. And in order to do that, the first important hire you get is a chief customer officer, and that inevitably goes back to one of our other problems, Stephen, we talked about, which is trying to get the monkey off your back, which is the founder, right? If you're ahead of sales. If you're ahead of sales, they're always gonna to wanna to be engaged and involved, and they're gonna be wanting to coach you on your deals. As a chief customer officer, it kind of puts you know your founder at bay because you're ultimately responsible for the success of your customers. I would say this role is only being used mainstream globally. I would say in the past, Five years. I mean, we never called anyone a chief customer officer unless you were a renewals expert. And now the chief customer role is becoming much more mainstream. Buyers are getting used to the title and realize, aha, uh-huh. so it's not really what you say because you actually own sales too. But it's quite inclusive. So that's, that's one thing I would recommend.
1: That makes complete sense, Melissa. And in particular, because we're building annuity businesses where, you know, all the profit is in the second, third, fourth, fifth years. And if, if you're only focused on, on customer acquisition, then really the business is, is on a hiding to nothing. But the second thing you talked about at the beginning was, so you've got the professionalism and then you've got this kind of success culture. Yeah. And I threw in the word culture. You didn't use that i just wondering how, how does that culture of success become kind of embedded into the business where, you know, we're really setting expectations and then delivering on the, the promises right the way across the customer life cycle?
2: You know, the best way to ensure that you're creating and developing and enhancing a success culture is is to create success that's measurable. I'm very, very big here at SUSE. We've introduced something called guiding principles, which is very much built on. We are going to create a vision and a mission for this company that everyone can relate to. Everyone can understand what is our vision for this company to be, And what is our mission this year? How are we going to get this vision while writing down a mission? And then we do a number of different things. And every single employee in my company does this today. And I would encourage founders to do it early on as you build the company. Create your vision, create your mission collaboratively with your leadership team, with key stakeholders so everyone understands what great looks like, right? You're managing expectations again. The second thing that needs to be part of your vision and mission is then create a series of programs or initiatives that you're going to be creating with priority to deliver against your success. And then obviously the second side of the coin is to create measurements. The only way to create a culture built upon success is to be able to identify what success is and then to celebrate it. If you understand early on what the measurements are going to be, what your vision for the company is going to look like, you can celebrate those successes as you pass the gates and milestones to getting to a successful quarter or month or year. You have to celebrate the wins. You have to measure your successes. You have to talk about it and communicate it. To win quietly at a startup should never, ever exist. You need to win loudly and celebrate every success you make because the sum of every single small success will be huge successes
1: long-term. Don't win quietly. Don't
2: win quietly.
1: (laughs) I can't imagine you ever doing that.
2: You probably can't imagine me doing anything quietly, could you?
1: (laughs) That's true. Yeah, man. Very true. (laughs) Melissa, it's it's been fantastic. A really, really fascinating conversation. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. It was
0: a real pleasure. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.